Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. A little bit of a investor meeting over the weekend. Now, who has investor meetings like on a Saturday? The ones that don't want to have them while markets are publicly trading. I think <laughs> okay. it's brilliant. If you want to be the center of attention, you know that people are going to pay attention on a Saturday. I think right. it's great. And some people actually go out to Omaha, Nebraska to attend. One of those people is uh, Matt Palazzola. He's a senior uh, insurance analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. How was Omaha? Like I didn't know you were weekend. out there. I was there. I, it was fine. It was supposed to be warm. It was a little rainy the first day, um, but I got to stay in downtown Omaha, which had a, a, some nice restaurants. Nebraska so, disappointed, Paul. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, do you literally thousands of people go into an arena? Yeah. It's the, the downtown arena there. They have two days. The first day is essentially a shopping day where all the companies are there. People are buying stuff hand over fist. You do get to talk to some of the managements of the companies, which okay. is cool. And then the second day is the actual meeting. I'm sorry, wait, an arena, like college orientation, like, yeah, no, I think it's, describe I, this. I, it, it's the CHI or Chai. I actually don't know the name of the arena in Omaha. And there are sports teams that play there. So it's, it's kind of like a smaller version of a, a sports arena that you might see here. All right. So, Takeaways here, Occidental Petroleum. Let's start there. What, what, what are, what's Berkshire Hathaway saying they're going to do there? So, so he shot that down. He he specifically brought up, we're not going to buy it. Uh, we don't want to buy the whole company. We might buy more of the stock, but we're not interested in owning the whole company. And is that anything more than that? Like, we feel like we've got enough energy. We, we've got yeah, enough exposure. Why wouldn't they take a control? He didn't really touch on it. I mean, they, they have a lot of energy exposure. They own yep. a ton of Chevron as That's well. Right. Um, those is kind of operate in the same space so and he said why would we want to do that i mean they own the preferreds why would they want to lose that yield on those preferreds to own the stock that's a good point well uh you are at its core as i discovered this morning an insurance guy yes. so give us the give us the highlights from geico here so what was interesting is auto insurers uh have been really taking it on the chin for the past year the first quarter results surprised on the upside uh, because of Geico. So the results were better than I thought they'd be. Uh, Ajit Jain, who's in charge of the insurance business, the vice chairman, pointed out uh, they had favorable reserve development and it was a little bit of seasonality and he kind of talked down the next two years. Um, so it was a kind of earnings beat on that, but the go forward outlook, not great. So, so like on the auto business, Detroit's making fewer cars, therefore there's fewer insurance policies, therefore Geico's business growth that is coming down. Is that kind of the way to think about it? Not necessarily. So what it is, is maybe fewer cars being built, uh, prices of those cars going, going up. up, those cars becoming more expensive to repair or replace, thus insurance claims going up. Okay. Um, Geico is actually cutting claim, uh, cutting policies to combat that. So their policies are going down, but not, not for the reason of there being less cars, for the reason of they're just making less money. So they want to stop losing. 
<laughs> and they still spend a lot on advertising. <laughs> they, they certainly do. All of them are cutting across the board, but cutting from a large uh, starting point. Right. What else on the, in, in, I'm sorry, yeah, what, what else in the insurance business? Like, explain to us what else Berkshire Hathaway has in the insurance business. So they have a, re, I know this is your favorite business, Paul, yes, reinsurance. A reinsurance business, which is insurance for insurance companies. And what was very interesting was there's renewal points at certain points in the year. And uh, one of the big ones is January 1st. And Berkshire was kind of a, a non-player in that. And they're a huge player in the space. So there was a question of, well, what, what are they seeing that we're not seeing? Because this is the prices in, in reinsurance are doing really well. And other reinsurance companies are saying, this is great. It's a generational market. And Berkshire, uh, known as one of the smartest players, actually didn't participate. And we didn't know what happened. Uh, Ajit actually said at the meeting, you know what, a lot of capacity came on that undercut us in price in January, but in uh, April, we saw that capacity come back. So they're, they're jumping back into reinsurance in a big way. Oh my gosh, so who, who, who insures the reinsurers? <laughs> the, the retro reinsurers. There's retro. another level of it, actually. Wait, really? Yes. Oh, okay, that was sarcastic. <laughs> yes. something every single day. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the cash pile that Berkshire is, is sitting on here. So 130 billion ish in, in cash. Um, what what was incredibly interesting is you know the takeaway. A lot of headlines where Buffett says operating companies going to make less money next year, which he did say, um, and he said it was an extraordinary environment in the past couple of years that demand was through the roof. If people couldn't buy one thing, they bought another, uh, and that is slowing down. It's stopping, but the cash that they're earning or the interest they're earning, right. going from 50 million to $5 billion wow. on their cash and short-term securities, which would essentially offset any decline in demand they saw. All right, is, all right, Succession. Not the TV show, we're talking about Succession. I'm so um, excited for just one second there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Greg Abel, he is the successor. He was named in 2021. Is that whole Succession question kind of off the table now? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think Greg is is clearly uh, the one who's going to do it. They're trying to get him out there a little bit more. He was on the stage for the first half of the meeting. Why he isn't he, I mean, they got Charlie and I got Mr. Munger there. Mm -hmm. Why don't I have the guy who's actually running the business? So, so, so he was, Greg and Ajit were in the, at the beginning of the meeting for okay. a couple of hours. Greg didn't get a lot of questions, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Ajit actually ended up talking more than Greg, but he talked a lot in an, another interview you know, Buffett and Munger will will say that running their business is quote easy. Clearly, it's not. But uh, they have a point in that, as constructed, even just left alone, will generate significant amounts of capital. All right, I'm going to ask you to go a little wonky here because we're coming into the summer, which means we're coming into hurricane season. How does the state of Florida? insure itself against hurricanes it, 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 it's barely hanging on by a thread so what is going on in florida is um if i go it, buy a condo down there with like every one of my neighbors who's mm -hmm. moving down to florida which i'm not doing by the way and that'd be the last thing i do can i get insurance down there for my little you condo? can get it it would be quite expensive i believe um what was happening is it's not just the weather risk but the the litigious environment in florida was causing claims to be multiples of what they should be. If okay. a claim was $10,000, you could end up being $100,000 with legal costs and all these things. So what happened is our friends, the reinsurers actually said, we're not reinsuring you anymore. And that led to the primary insurance companies losing financial strength ratings and going out of business. So the cost of it went through the roof and the state actually insures a lot of that. Berkshire, to bring it back to them, yeah. actually jumped into Florida 
in these re reinsurance renewals. So if there is a hurricane in Florida and you have me back here in a couple right. of months, Berkshire would actually be pretty exposed. Now, why do you think they got back into the Florida market? So Ajit was saying the pricing was probably just too yep. good to resist. Um, and look, they're incredibly smart. So they they know the balance of what the capital are putting at risk uh, versus what they can make. So it's not ideal, is it, to have the state as the insurance backbone of a it is not a, not at all. The insurance industry, I believe it was Evan Greenberg, the CEO of Chubb, said we don't want the government taking our business, but there's some points where it just do, it's not economically viable for them. To is there do a it. solution? Is it a, 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 something a political solution? So there is. So F Florida has been working on it, and they have legislation going through. It's a little bit of wait and see, but I think we're cautiously optimistic that they may have helped the problem maybe not solved but helped you think i mean again coming into a hurricane season again and our good friends down in florida seem to get just hammered it, just, it seems to be getting worse so i would think if i were a politician i'd want to get this thing addressed yeah the frequency and severity of hurricanes is definitely getting worse in florida all right we'll see how it plays out um uh, and we'll get to it all right some good stuff thank you very much. matt palazzoli he covers all that good stuff for insurance for bloomberg intelligence Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I guess earnings still matter. They certainly matter for Tyson Foods. Stock is down 13% today, 52-week low, kind of wiping out most of the year's gains here. I guess they missed some numbers here. People aren't eating chicken? What's going on here? Jen Bartash is Senior Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She follows the food industry. Jen, uh, TSN, Tyson Foods, what happened? Um, well, with Tyson, it's really a, a, a combination of things. One, you've got some structural market issues in the protein market uh, for both beef, yeah, for beef, pork, and chicken and it's hitting Tyson all simultaneously. And then second, you have some execution issues that are Tyson-owned uh, in terms of not running plants at full capacity um, and weak margins across the board. And so when you put all this together, it turned out to be a really weak quarter for the company. All right, there's so many cool things on the Bloomberg Terminal. PGEO is one of it. It kind of breaks down where the companies get their revenue from, and for Tyson, it is awesome. 
Beef, 38% of the revenue. Chicken, 33% of the revenue. Prepared foods, 19% of the revenue. And pork, 10% of the revenue. So that's a breakdown for you. So let's just focus on, you mentioned one's kind of an industry-wide, you know, protein issues. What's going on there? I'm eating my proteins. Well, I think everybody's eating their protein, but but when it comes to the actual um, cycle of growing animals, um, there's some structural issues that are happening. So if you remember, um, not that long ago, we were talking about the beef market and we were talking about how herds were just being um, were just being obliterated. Um, and it takes a long time to actually rebuild beef herds. And so what we, we still haven't really hit the bottom of the beef cycle yet. And so what that means is that there are fewer animals. Um, and the prices are higher, um, so it, it costs more to, 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 to get them. Um, and prices at retail have been high, so the demand hasn't been as strong. So there's some, some awkwardness going on there. Um, and with Tyson, everything, everything everybody wants to think about is with the chicken market. Um, and, and Tyson has underperformed in chicken for a long time. Um, uh, they've made some moves. They've you know, announced they're closing a couple of plants, um, things like that, but that takes time to actually see the benefit from um, and so even though they're, you know, they're improving their fill rates to customers, there's still, um, there's still a lag in terms of execution versus where the market is. So I guess we can't blame those darn vegetarians uh, at, at all. Um, talk to us a little bit about the timeline there when you're talking about Tyson rebuilding uh, that kind of herd. Is that a, a story of a quarter or, or years? Well, you know, beef by, by you know, takes takes the longest in terms of the cycle. Um, we're talking probably 2020, late 2024, early 2025, till we see a real change in that market. Uh, you know, for pork, that's a slightly uh, shorter time span, but we're talking probably 2024. And for chicken, um, it's a short time span, but there are a lot of moving parts to it. Um, and that's the area where Tyson's business has had the most um, execution issues. Um, so. Although the company is expecting improved performance in the second half of this year, realistically, we may be looking at 2024 before things really settle down. You know, I watch Yellowstone. I think I fully understand <laughs> this whole ranching cattle thing. Where does Tyson, where do they get their cattle? Like, how many ranches are out there, the Dutton Ranch in Montana? I mean, like, how many ranches are there out there, like, supply beef and all that kind of stuff? Well, there, there are a large number of ranches out there, and, and Tyson, they, they have long-established relationships with um, individual ranchers um, in terms of their supply so that they are sure that they have kind of that, uh, you know, the supply locked in. Um, but it's been tough times. We've had years of drought. You know, we've had higher costs to feed animals. Um, it is not an easy time to be a rancher right now. And so um, that, that makes it, there's less incentive to, to increase herd size. Um, when you've got a lot of those kind of macroeconomic and you know um, pressures, and you know even interest rates are higher, it's you know it's harder to to invest in your in your ranch as well. And we're really glad you mentioned just the higher pricing and interest rates as well. Talk to us about the pricing equation. It felt like a lot of food companies and consumer companies broadly uh, were almost rewarded by the stock market when they were able to say we're going to hike up our prices and still see that demand. Uh, just how sticky are those prices? Well, you know, the, the prices so far have been sticky, but what we're seeing when we look at transaction-level data um, from, uh, you know, from what's, what people are actually buying, what we're seeing is that that, that tolerance for the price increases is abating. Um, and so, you know, in, in our perspective, what that really means is that as we get towards the second half of the year, there's a real chance that we're going to see a, an increase in promotions. 
Um, and so you're going to see retailers running more sales. Um, now, I think everyone's going to try to, to, to minimize, you know, the, the profit impact of those. Um, but the, the, the macroeconomic environment is really setting these companies up to where they're going to have to be more promotional in nature, um, and consumers in part are demanding that. So that tolerance for price increases is, is, is almost gone now. Um, it's going to be harder and harder for these companies to put more price, uh, more price increases through. Um, so it's, it's going to be a, a, a tricky second half of the year to navigate. So, Jen, the, the, the troubles you outlined here for Tyson, are we seeing that with some of their peers like Pilgrim's Pride and, and so, some of those others? Is this an industry-wide type of issue? Well, some, some of it is industry-wide. So some, some of those um, structural issues in terms of like, um, animal availability, the cost of feed, those, those impact everybody relatively equally. Um, you know, when it comes to actual internal challenges in terms of how you're running your plants, are you fully staffed, you know, are you at your maximum capacity, um, that's where Tyson has, has had more challenges than some of their peers. Jen, talk to us a little bit about the, you talked about the macroeconomic piece of it. Talk to us about the interest rate specific piece of it. I think you talked about how uh, higher interest rates makes it harder to invest in ranches specifically. Again, walk us through the timeline on it. Is there a extra lag uh, from when the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates to just how much difficulty some of these um, kind of ranchers face? Or is this something that we kind of look at idiosyncratically? Well, I, I, I think that there's, there's, no, there's, no, uh, easy, no, there's no easy answer to that, to be honest. Um, you know, ranchers you know, tend to be a conservative bunch by nature, um, and it's, it's not an easy business to be in. And so anytime there are, in, there are factors that impact their ability to grow their business or to invest in their business, um, that, that puts, puts them on a more defensive footing. Um, and so there, there's definitely a lag. So it, it will take time once interest rates, if they start to come down a little bit, uh, it will take a little bit of time for confidence to come back that that is the right time to do more investment. Um, and so it's, 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 you know, you're talking about people's, you know, long-term livelihoods. And so it's, it's not something that tends to move or pivot very quickly. Jen, you also cover the uh, supermarket side of the supply chain here, the food supply chain. So in Tyson, they have higher costs, therefore they raise their prices. Are the supermarkets able to pass along those price increases to consumers? They are passing through um, selectively. Um, and so, you know, where they can, they do. Um, I think that the one advantage that, that grocers have is because a lot of them offer private label products, they're very in tune with what it costs to manufacture certain products. And so they can have very good negotiations with the packaged food companies. Um, and not just accept price increases for the sake of price increases. Um, you know, what, what a, a grocer will do is they will pick certain products where, you know, they want to maintain their, their value perception in the minds of their customers. And so if, if prices spike hugely, say, on, um, on a particular product, um, they may not pass the full price increase through just so that their customers feel like they're still getting a good deal, um, but they will pass through price on other, you know, other products. So it's, it's, they kind of focus on key items um, that drive value perception um, and manage that, um, the, what they pass through very carefully on those. And then they take a little bit more, they have a little bit more flexibility on the rest of the store in terms of price increases. Jen, uh, very quickly, 30 seconds. Do we see buybacks, dividend increases, any of that jazz in Tyson's future? 
Well, they say that they're going to kind of maintain the same course that they've had in terms of their um, capital allocation, and so you know, don't don't anticipate any any cuts to that to that policy, um, and we'll have to see what third quarter holds. All right, Jen, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, checking in with you, talking about Tyson Food. Again, they had some uh, a tough quarter, tough outlook uh, for that business. Jen Bartash is senior industry analyst. She covers all the, the whole food stuff, all the way through to the retail and through the supermarket. So a great understanding there. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, let's talk to professional here about these markets because they're Time to time, you just feel like you're in a market with so many cross currents out there. Eco data, Federal Reserve movement here, earnings. We're right finishing up the earnings season. Uh, we've got a little bit of a bank turmoil here, and you put all that together, and it's tough to come up with some big conviction buys. But let's check in with somebody who does this for a living. Ethan Devitt, Chief Investment Officer of Manetta Group. Ethan, again, cross currents out there. I'd be interested to get your perspective about how you think this market is behaving and where you think it's going to go going forward. It's extremely difficult to give a, a sense of direction right now because we're seeing such contrary indicators. We even have to look at today's performance and markets versus Friday's performance. When we can see that markets really are moving on the smallest piece of news, most of which is contradictory. You know, was inflation coming into check? It looked like that at some point last week. We heard the Fed speak of you know, potentially a pause and that all looked very positive. And now we come back with, with commodity prices rising. And it looks like it could be, you know, persisting and staying quite solid again this week. You mentioned a little bit of turmoil in the banking sector. That is a story that we think has some way to run sometime. And there are essentially a lot of unknowns, unknowns when it comes to regional banks and banks in general. So that's creating a lot of uncertainty. And this is May. Remember, May, sell a May and go away. Yep. I think traditionally there's not a ton of optimism around this time of year. So a lot going on for sure. Even let's talk a little bit about the bond market here. Apple coming to the market with a five-part bond sale uh, known to be timing the market very well. And every time in the last, I want to say pre-COVID, going back to 2019, they've issued five times, including today, and four, not including today, uh, have yielded higher yields after that, essentially making them kind of uh, – issuing bonds in the troughs that are yields fallen, for lack of a better term. Uh, does that mean we should expect higher yields in our near future as we expect the Federal Reserve to end their tightening cycle? Well, certainly bonds have been the asset class, uh, I'd say, of the year. And because certainly they behaved so badly last year, we're seeing a lot of people look again at bonds. And that's part of the reason we're seeing this money flow out of bank deposits, because bonds themselves are paying so much. When it comes to looking again at bonds, we can look, certainly, we don't have to take as much risk as in the past to get a very decent, healthy yield, 4 or 5% for essentially very low risk. So it doesn't surprise me that there would be strong demand for an Apple issue. It's certainly seen as being the bluest of the blue chips in terms of issuing and of issuing debt. And certainly the equity is so well supported that the debt has got to be rock solid there. So in terms of what we can expect for bonds, I don't see the rates going that much higher, actually, because I think the overwhelming view of the market seems to be that we're in for a pause or a pivot. It doesn't look like that today, but that was certainly the mood that was coursing through for the last few weeks. And to that end, I guess the Federal Reserve will be paying attention, uh, obviously, Wednesday to the CPI data. I guess CPI, X food and energy looking to be up 5.5%. That's smidge down from the prior month of 5.6%. 
I mean, when you see numbers like that, it, it feels like higher for longer. But boy, as you mentioned, Ethan, the market, the, the futures market is really pricing in rate cuts uh, later this year. How, how do you guys think about that? Yeah, despite the Fed has been desperately trying to telegraph its actions and really regain trust and confidence, just like other central banks around the world, they've been doing a decent job, I think, at clawing back some assurance. Markets still are prone to second-guessing them over and over, and we're certainly seeing that. So as far as the inflation numbers, we do think that a lot of what's feeding into that core inflation number is going to be um, lagging indicators, say things like employment and the cost of labor. Because that lags, we essentially don't necessarily expect it to persist. We, previous to this week, we did see commodities coming down. That was going to be, again, feeding in to lower inflation overall. And we, there are still those deflationary forces out there. We speak every second day about AI and what that means for employment. If that is, in fact, a long-term trend, and of course it is at this point, we couldn't deny that, won't that be deflationary? So I think investors are trying to really parse this inflation data and see what is, in fact, transitory, because some of it is, and what's likely to stick. So a very mixed picture, but I'd say a pause is what we're looking at at the moment, not a pivot. And I don't agree with, with that we're going to see more rate hikes. Ethan, what about the debt ceiling? Do we need to worry about this kind of ticking time uh, clock that we have going? June 1st, I believe, Janet Yellen, uh, warning about uh, about hitting that upper limit. How much of this is just kind of a uh, boy crying wolf? Very good point. I mean, we are, though, if we've learned anything from COVID and, and beyond, we are very adept at kicking the can down the road in every Every single instance has been pressure on the debt ceiling up to now. We will kick it down the road again. We, will there be political posturing and jostling and saber rattling as we get to that point? Absolutely. But just as the inflation data has been moving around, the tax receipt data has been quite unclear at the moment. We hear capital gains were down last year. But then again, we're hearing about the employment picture being solid and income tax being solid. So for that picture, we really don't know what the picture looks like. There probably was a little bit of crying wolf just to get people to think about this seriously. But again, if we think about how this has impacted markets in the past, just like most other political developments, they tend to be pretty short-lived. So I think there could be just just a more, more kind of a sucking out of some of that confidence yeah. out of the stock market as this deadline nears. But I don't see it as being transformational in terms of sentiment. The only one better, Paul, uh, than me at procrastinating is the U.S. government, <laughs> <Okay>. apparently. Even <laughs> uh, let's talk again about the trade here in our last 30 seconds or so. Let's say it's June 1st. In this last iteration that we've had, I think 2011, when uh, the U.S. Uh, did have that credit rating downgrade, the immediate reaction was, by American, uh, the biggest paradox. Do we see that happen again? It's full of paradoxes, just as we've seen a little bit of strength in the dollar in recent days compared to other currencies. We've also seen it um, come down from its 20-year peak that it was at last year. And so there's that movement to the dollar, that discussion around de-dollarization, that betting against the U.S. economy versus don't, not betting against the U.S. economy because it is essentially so tech-driven. There is, um, there, there's been, we, we've heard, heard arguments on both sides there. So I'd say as to what will happen with the debt ceiling, I think there is definitely a tendency towards needing to take some of the strength out of the dollar. It's been too long for too, it's been too high for too long. And as other economies around the world are actually perhaps being underestimated, in particular Europe, right. we are going to see some strength return there. So I'd okay. say I wouldn't say there'll be a mad rush into the U.S. Right. even if this debt ceiling is resolved. All right, Ethan, thank you so much for joining us. Ethan Devitt, Chief Investment Officer uh, for Moneta Group. We appreciate getting some of her time.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Microsoft Activision, $69 billion. It got your attention when that thing hit the tape. But some U.K. regulators are saying they're not going to approve it. I mean, so a lot of uncertainty there. Even Warren Buffett weighed in on over the weekend saying he opposes the UK blocking this deal. So let's get some of the experts back in the room to kind of talk about where we are with this deal. What does it mean for Microsoft? What does it mean for Activision? Jen Ree, she's a senior analyst uh, covering antitrust litigation with Bloomberg Intelligence. She's got that part of the game covered. And Anurag Rana, senior technology analyst with BI. He covers Microsoft. He's done that uh, for ages for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone. Uh, Jen is in our studio here in New York. So, Jen, let's start with you here. Uh, Warren Buffett weighs in over the weekend. That kind of is in- interesting here. Just summarize for us why the UK regulators are blocking Microsoft's pending, Activision, uh, pending acquisition for Activision. So what the UK is worried about is what they think is going to be the next big thing in gaming. Not not what's going on today where most people would play a first shooter game like Activision's Call of Duty on a console or on a PC. But down the road when they believe gamers will be playing through the cloud and possibly through subscription services. So they think Microsoft already has a pretty big hold in the cloud market. And with this content, I think they think of Call of Duty as sort of must-have content for gamers, first-person shooter gamers they will be able to sort of corner this up and coming cloud market. They'll be able to somehow damage their rivals, take market share and dominate that area. And what they're trying to do is protect that, protect what they think is going to be the future of gaming. So Anurag, come in here. How much does Microsoft need this deal? I know I don't think they would they'll do fine without the deal also. And, uh, you know, I'm no expert in cloud gaming, but you know, people who know uh, a lot more than me in this area, including Matt Miller, has told me that it's, you know, <laughs> so far away, latency issue and, and stuff. And, and I think, you know, Jen and I have talked about it, and she's taught me that, you know, it's not so much what's here, but what could happen three to five years from now. Um, and I think that's really the reason why uh, regulators are kind of worried here. But Microsoft shareholders, they like this deal, don't they? Don't they want Microsoft to get into some more content businesses? 
Yeah, I mean, they should. Uh, you know, when, when I think I was surprised when Satya took over, the, one of the first acquisitions was Minecraft. And I said, well, what the hell is Minecraft? <laughs> I had no clue about it. And, and, and uh, yeah, I, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't know anything about gaming. And, uh, you know, they have a console business and they are fighting neck to neck with Sony always about it. And, you know, it's, it's expanding their studios, it's expanding the games, the, the ecosystem. Um, and this is just another way of it. So, yeah, I mean, from a shareholder point of view, it's fine. If they have it, it's good. If they don't have it, it's not their business is going to die anytime soon. You know, it's just not as strong as it would have been. So then what's next for Microsoft? They're going to appeal? Yeah, well, they've talked about appealing, but, you know, there are a couple things that could stand in the way. So they do have a mid-July end date to the agreement. And at that point in time, unless they extend it, Activision could walk away and collect the $3 billion fee. Now, if they extend that, and it looks like they're pretty serious about going through this appeal. I've seen some news about hiring great lawyers in the UK, and they've talked about it a lot, and they, they seem to want to do this. It is a very high standard. So, you know, it's a long shot. It doesn't mean they couldn't win, but it is a long shot. I, I dug up some statistics for this, and I did see that in the last 10 years or so, the UK's won about 70% of these merger appeals. Wow. So, you know, just looking at that, you're looking at 30%. Well, Jen, why doesn't Microsoft just carve out the UK? I mean, and the fifth, and I mean, who cares? Well, here's the thing, you know, the UK is a big economy. And also, it's a big gaming economy. This is what I understand. Uh, I was a little bit surprised, but I guess the Brits love gaming. So, you know, that's a lot of revenue. And what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to do the economics of that and, and see, is it worth it for them to go ahead and close this worldwide and then withdraw out of the UK? Does the U.S. follow what the U.K. does? How likely is that? Well, the U.S. has actually already sued, but there's a really big difference because Microsoft here in the U.S., I believe, would win in court. Right. I think they have a really good shot. This is a vertical deal. It's very speculative as to whether there's going to be this big cloud gaming in the future and whether this deal would actually harm that area. You know, whether Call of Duty is so important that everybody has to have it in order to have a successful game subscription business. Um, so they have a better chance here. In the U.K., it's different. The standard much higher. So what the, the court has to decide that the decision is completely and totally irrational. And, and that's worse than just bad judgment or not a good decision. It has to be really bad. Anurag, how, what's, what's Microsoft saying in terms of their willingness to and, and, and how far they will take this? How hard are they going to fight for this deal, do you think? I think they'll fight now whatever options they have. They have, I think, given all the concessions they could from their side. I don't think there's going to be any more from here. Um, but, you know, from my side, if it doesn't go through, I'll be happy with some more buybacks. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Jen, does this just signal we've got a Democratic administration in there, there's a new sheriff in town, and mm -hmm. we're just going to take a tougher stance on M&A in general? Is that reflective of that, or is that, or is this more specific to this deal? Oh, no, I think it's absolutely about taking a more aggressive stance, particularly in big tech, uh, particularly when it's an, a big incumbent that's buying a smaller company. Um, and I think also it's regrets, regrets for past deals that the FTC and the DOJ allowed through, like Google Live Double Nation, Club. I would say. Live like, well, Nation. Live Nation, yeah. for sure. Hello. You know, even Comcast NBCU from way back, there, there are some regrets really? about that one. Absolutely, because there are allegations that they violated their consent order. Um, you have Facebook with Instagram and WhatsApp. So, you know, I think the, the agencies think we were asleep at the wheel too long, especially when it comes to big tech. And so we have to be really careful and technology moves fast. So we need to be thinking about those future markets instead of just looking at the market as it stands today. Anurag, is there an acquisition then that if this doesn't go through that you would rather Microsoft be focusing on or, or to your point, are you just dividends focused? 
Buybacks for Honorock. Buy yes. He's a buy tech guy. Sorry, I like sorry. dividends, of course. I'm a dividend guy, but Honorock's strictly a buyback person. so old school of me. I apologize. Yeah. See, see, the way I think about it, as far as big tech is concerned, uh, they can't even buy pizza now. I mean, it's just, it's just <laughs> they cannot buy anything at this point. I would agree. All right, so... so you know, uh, th I think they, the only thing left is buybacks then. All right, so I mean, it, so if I'm a Microsoft, I'm, I'm looking at the p and I'm looking at the business model, that's it. Now it's only a question of what do I do with the cash? Exactly. All right. All right, enough with you then, uh, Anurag. <laughs> I mean, so, Jen, let's go back to you here. I mean, it's interesting here. If, is there a sentiment out there that big deals in general are facing a much higher hurdle, just in general, even if it's not tech? I mean, if one consumer products company wants to buy another, it's a different world than it was maybe three or four years ago? Paul, absolutely. And it's not just a sentiment. I mean, the statistics show it. In the last, I think, well, for sure this quarter, and possibly even in the last year, until this weekend, the DOJ had not settled a deal with a consent order. So they just settled a lock case, a company, Asa Abloy, that was in the middle of trial. And they settled with some divestitures, and I think it's because they could tell from what the judge was saying, things weren't going very well for the DOJ in trial. But it used to be that about 4% of the deals that got filed would get these in-depth investigations, and most of them would close with settlements. Now, hardly any of them close with settlements. So from the actions of the agencies, we're seeing that it's really any big company, any big deal. What does like my mom need to know about this? Like if these deals are less likely to go through, is that good for the consumer in the end? Because it means more competition, you know? Well, first is your mom a merger arbitrager? Oh, sure. Because yes. then she was gonna have some serious concerns. Um, you know, it depends on the deal. Yeah. You know, and I think it depends on your perspective. I think there are a lot of people looking right now at Kroger Albertsons and thinking, oh, I don't want that deal to close. You know, I have a Kroger branded uh, supermarket and an Albertsons supermarket that I go to. I don't want that to be owned by one company. And that's a very consumer facing area. Um, pharmaceuticals, I, I think people who, you know, getting older, they, they need to have prescription drugs. They're not going to want to see these big pharma deals. And actually, we haven't seen a big pharma deal in a while. You know, th that's going to be a tough deal to close right now. Um, so I really think it depends on your perspective. I'm guessing your mom probably wouldn't care very much if Microsoft bought Activision. <laughs> I have a feeling no one in the Mills family is not, <laughs> not big, on Onorog's team with they're that. They're not yeah. big gamers. All right, Onorog Rani, he covers all the tech stuff along with uh, uh, his team uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and Jenry follows all the antitrust stuff, which is just critical when you get a big deal and then you get a big deal that runs into some regulatory issues. We immediately turn to Jen and say, what's up, what's going on, and how's this gonna play out? And she's got great experience, and we appreciate it, uh, getting it here. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Today, time for our C-Suite conversation. Let's go a little tech, uh, and we'll do that with Amit Walia. He's the CEO of Informatica. Informatica is a publicly traded company. INFA is a ticker to put into your Bloomberg professional service. You can see that stock. It's got a market cap of about $4.2 billion, up about four-tenths of 1% today. Stock's off about 10% year-to-date. Amit, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, for our listeners, let's just take a couple, uh, uh, take 30 seconds and just give me a, an overview of what you guys do at Informatica. Well, thanks for hosting me, Paul and Madison. Great to be here. Well, I'm actually talking to you from in, uh, Vegas, where we are using uh, doing our annual user conference, Informatica World. Where is so this? Inf 
so we are doing our user conference here, our annual user conference in Las Vegas. So okay. I'm speaking here. Well, Informatica is the leader in what we call data management. Uh, you know, it's the only platform out there and we help customers bring data from any source at high quality, make sure you can make the most out of it, do analytics, uh, make business decisions and govern it for all kinds of regulatory compliance and provision that data for any user across the enterprise. That's what we do across pretty much all large enterprise uh, globally. So in your description, I'm stealing a Paul, a Paul joke, but you've got cloud in the title. Uh, I know you've got some AI stuff going on. You've got all the good buzzwords that markets are liking these days. Um, how, is, how is the business doing, especially following uh, some of the market reaction to your earnings report? Well, we had a great Q1. So to give you some context, we guided this year, cloud is a big number for us, and we guided this year to a 35% growth for our cloud ARR, and we actually grew 41% in Q1. So we are off to a great start. In fact, we crossed a big milestone uh, for subscription ARR, which is what cloud is a part of, and that grew 20% at a billion dollar run rate. In fact, we've guided to a half a billion of cloud ARR in Q2. So we're feeling great. In fact, another good test of that is the usage of our cloud platform, IDMC, and that usage grew 69% year over year. So we feel good about cloud data and AI, the trifactor, and we sit in the middle of it. So, you know, big data, another a term that's that's certainly in, in the news. I mean, that kind of feels like your company is is benef a beneficiary of just kind of big data as we put more and more stuff in the cloud, more and more data in the cloud. How did your business kind of evolve, transform, manage its way through the pandemic when there was such a, you know, increased, increased importance of data? That's a great question. I mean, you know, digital transformation, which is what's been happening for the last many years, it's all about cloud and data. And to the point you made, it's not only about growth of data, it's also about fragmentation of data. So that was a tailwind to us. And our transformation was that, you know, we pivoted more aggressively towards the cloud. In fact, walking into this year, we only sell cloud and our platform, as I shared with you, grew 69% year over year. So that has been a tailwind because the more the data, the more the fragmentation, the more the complexity, that's where data management becomes very handy. And given our scale, we'll be helping that to customers like Kroger, Unilever, American Airlines, uh, you know, Banco do Brazil, Cellcom, you name those, those end up being our customers. Within your customer base, are you seeing any potential recession signs just yet, or are you still seeing some strength? Billion dollar question, right? Um, I would say I, I'm not seeing a recession sign for sure. I think what we, when we walked into this year, the macro, uh, what we saw in Q4, we saw definitely enterprises are stretched. They are being thoughtful. Deal sizes are obviously elongated. We saw the same in Q1. In fact, we guided based on that macro. We assumed that that macro will stay for the year. And as, as I said, we guided for like a 35% cloud ARR growth number. Q1 ended up being better than that. Right now, I'm at Informatica World I User Conference. Actually, it's the highest ever attended conference so far. We've exceeded 2019 numbers. So I'd say the conversations around digital transformation are high. AI-powered digital transformation, very high. We do see a macro that's stretched, but no worse or no better than three months ago. Amit, talk to us about cloud-native AI-powered platform. I think the kids call it Claire. What does that mean for you? What's that business for you? Yeah, for us, you know, we built out one cloud-native platform. All of our services are on one platform. So that's one thing. But the big thing there is that we natively integrated Claire, which is our AI engine. And the beauty of Claire is that we, what we all see in the world of consumers, 
uh, we took all of those machine learning algorithms and curated it for enterprises. As an example, you do photo tagging on Facebook, we do that, apply that for data tagging. You do recommendations on Amazon, we apply that for when people want recommendations on data sets. NLP becomes data quality. So that's what we've been doing. And in fact, uh, to kind of give you some sneak preview of tomorrow when we do Keynote's main stage, we're going to showcase Claire in the context of generative AI and how we're expanding it there. Huge amount of intelligence and productivity improve for enterprises, and we see tremendous interest over there. Talk to me about that interest then. What specific tools uh, regarding generative AI, both on the intelligence and automation side, have you found to be most helpful for your customers? Well, one is everybody wants more productivity and automation. So our tools end up being infrastructure tools. So for example, you know, bringing data together from many places, we're automating that. You know, Claire can infer what kind of data should go where. It can bring it to you and you can see, and if you have to do nothing, it just does it. If you want to give it some uh, intelligence uh, towards the last mile, you can do that. Quality of data. You know, we talk about AI. AI is as good as the quality of data you put in that model. So data quality is becoming even more important governance of data you know in the world of ai ethics compliance become even more important so governance is seeing a big tailwind so we're seeing all of those natural things bringing data from many places quality and observability of data governance of data see tremendous amount of tailwind and interest from our customers amit got about 30 seconds left i see your stocks down about 27 percent over the trailing 12 months is the market getting something wrong or how do you view that well i think we're went through a big transformation going from on-premise to cloud. I do believe that as we go through this year and we have a great start, I think they'll understand that. I believe obviously we are supremely undervalued. Our job is to go execute, get our customers to get value from our platform and you know, rest of the things take care of itself. There's a pretty fluid macro out there. Our job is focus on the customer, keep innovating and focus on the long term and things take care of itself. Well, as an equity analyst myself, I like when my management team say that. I got nine buys out there, five holds and zero sells as per the ANR function on the Bloomberg Terminal for Informatica. Uh, so the street seems to be behind this company and this management team. Amit Walia, CEO of Informatica, uh, joining us here, giving us the latest on another segment of the tech space that is influenced greatly uh, by the cloud and the transformation for a lot of these tech businesses, in this case, you know, kind of big data uh, into the world of the cloud. So it's good a couple minutes with Mr. Walia. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You're a company. Let's say you're a company and you look at your balance sheet and you got about $166 billion of cash. You got some $100 billion or so of debt. So you're net cash positive. You're in a business that will somehow throw off $100 billion of free cash flow every year. Uh, so what do you do? You go issue debt. Go figure. They didn't teach that to me in business school. But the, Rob Schiffman, he knows all this stuff. Rob Schiffman, he's a tech credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here. So, Rob, is this just a case of me as a banker being really good at my job saying, hey, you raise it when you can. You don't raise it when you need it. Let's go ahead and throw some bonds out there. There's demand. Is it as simple as that? Not really. I mean, I think it's more about simple. That was my pitch, though, for many <laughs> years on Wall Street. It sounded good. Yeah. Um, I think it's more about simple math. I mean, there's a weighted average cost to capital. And when you've got nearly $3 trillion of equity, even if you have $100 billion of debt, 
your weighted average cost of debt for Apple is effectively zero. So it's really a cost-effective method of spending your money. And I, I think, you know, we got a lot of people asking us today with rates so much higher, why today? Yep. Um, and why not just wait? Well, when you have 10 odd billion dollars of debt maturing every single year, and you don't know where rates are gonna be in three minutes, let alone three months or, or three years, I think that's when it does come to your theory is that you take the money down now because it really doesn't cost you anything. The, the, the bigger question is why aren't they just using their cash for something else? Why do they have to borrow more? And it really boils down to their, their target. They want to be net cash neutral. So what does that mean? It's the same amount of cash as they have debt. And there's some $57 billion away from that right now. If you borrow money, so you borrow $10 billion today, their net cash position doesn't change at all. Mm. It stays exactly what it is. Because so they, they got need, all the free cash flow coming in. No, well, you borrow $10 billion, Yep. So it's $10 billion of debt, $10 billion of cash. Uh, That's now neutral. I see how the math so works. They need that to whole balance sheet thing. They need to start spending money. And, and you've asked in the, in the past, like, why don't some of these companies just raise their dividend? Thank you. Why don't they create a dividend? Well, Apple just raised their dividend 4%. But lower 4 than they did the year before. I could raise my, I mean, please. <laughs> so they're they, just trying to placate me now. They've got Tim a, Cook knows I'm looking for him. They're spending, let's say, in and around $15 billion a year in their dividend. Yeah. But they've got $100 billion of free cash flow every year. I, I think the, you know, years ago when we first started talking about Apple, I said for all the, the drinkers out there, it's like you go to a, a restaurant, you order a bottle of wine, you, you drink half your glass of wine. And, and, and a waiter walks over and refills your glass. And that's sort of the, what, what Apple's balance sheet looks like. As soon as they start spending the money, it gets reloaded. And mm -hmm. there's nothing out there that they can really buy. So what do they need to do? They need to meaningfully increase shareholder returns. Um, and I think they're going to be doing that. They added $90 billion through the buyback authorization. That gives them about $110 billion of stock they can buy back over the next year. That was, they did the same $90 billion last year. I mean, well, they on. still had $20 billion sitting there. Okay. Um, what it does is it sets them up that over time, as they continue to use money for dividends and buybacks, they're always going to be sitting on a mountain of cash. Mm -hmm. If you're net cash neutral and they end up with, say, $125 billion of debt. You know what that means? That means you're going to have $125 billion of cash on the books at all times. And you don't forget, like, you know, Apple's services business is exploding right now. Mm -hmm. It's still a tiny percentage of their top line. The vast majority of what this company is selling is hardware. And where, when you're a hardware business over the long term, you better have a lot of capital in reserve. In this case, you need to have tons of extra capital, probably 100 billion plus of cash sitting there all times. So why borrow now? Because it doesn't cost that much. It actually improves your, your cost of capital. It gives them tons of flexibility. Um, and um, uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't take away from their long-term goals, which is they can do whatever they want, whenever they want with their capital. And if they find a business they want to buy, they can buy it. If they find a business they want yep. to invest in, they can invest in it. And it looks like the bond market's always going to be there because it seems like this company is only one more notch away from being AAA across the board. Wow. Is, this, is that the same thinking behind why Apple is working with Goldman on the high-yield savings account, or do you think that's a different goal for them? No. I, like, become the bank for everyone as well, you know, as listen, the iPhone for everyone. So I think you need to, 
you need to diversify your revenue stream over time. And they've done a really good job of that. I mean, you know, a few years ago, people laughed at their watch, you know, and, yep. and you know, now they're selling billions worth. And there, I think there's a lot of different things that they can sell. These sort of add-ons when it comes to Apple Pay yeah. or payment processing or savings account, it's just, it's a way to expand their ecosystem and get their product set a little stickier. It doesn't really move the needle uh, at all though. The way they move their needle is they come up with a really cool new iPhone 15 uh, and they sell three to 400 million of those. Rob, you cover all of tech for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, credit. What's the best thing you're looking at right now? What's the best opportunity? What's the best that you're most excited about out there in tech? Honestly, I think it's really the sector. I mean, people nowadays are looking for safe havens and I, I've actually always thought tech is the safe haven. It's not the it's not banks, it's not treasuries, it's buying cash rich, cash flow generating businesses um, that have long term competitive advantages um, where there's huge barriers to entry. And whether that's Microsoft or Apple or Alphabet or even names like a Qualcomm or a Broadcom, I think across the spectrum of, of investment grade tech. There's lots of opportunities not to earn incremental spread, but to park your money when you don't have something better to invest in. I, I'm wildly bullish still on the tech space, and it doesn't mean excess returns this year are gonna be enormous. It just means that the, the risk of underperforming versus other asset classes, I think is, is really very low. Um, the, we had a webinar, I think I mentioned this with you last week, Paul, is we had a webinar with S&P and they went through all their low triple B global tech names and they said not one of them is at risk of being downgraded. So when we've got um, high quality banks that we don't know if they're going to be out of business tomorrow, you know, buy a name in a 10 year part of a treasury curve for a spread of 100 basis points and getting, you know, four and a half percent on your money. Man, I think that's it's a, a great trade when you don't have to worry about that cash disappearing. So it's not one particular name. Yeah. It's, it's really the sector. And I think that volatility in equities has skewed what people's thoughts are about the defensiveness of the credit space. But um, I, I think across the board, I think you want to have a barbell strategy from uh, right. AAAs down to triple Bs. Uh, all across the curve. All right, Rob, thank you so much. We appreciate it. As always, Rob Schiffman, technology credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Before that, he was doing that at Credit Suisse. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.